Hello, and welcome to The Gray Area, where I give interviews with developers, talk about gaming news and reviews, and focus on the interrelationships between gamers. My name is Genesee Gray, and this is the 94th episode in a weekly series called Akinero Acclaim. Here with me is American McGee, developer and founder of Spicy Horse. Welcome to the show. Hey, uh, thank you very much for having me on today. You're welcome. Uh, last week's episode was a discussion with Dino Ignacio, lead user interface designer for Electronic Arts through Visceral Games. Please visit www.genesee.com to add to the forum discussion on that topic and to tell me your story. Today is Wednesday, February 6th, and we're going to talk about Spicy Horse, Alice Madness Returns, and Akinero Demon Hunters. So, let's start with our first question. What is your news of the week? What's going on for you? Well, this has been a pretty uh, exciting week for us because we just came back from Chinese New Year, which is a 10-plus day event where something like 300 million people in China travel back to their hometown. So it's the largest uh, human migration on the planet that happens yearly. And, of course, it's a big vacation for us. So we all did that. Um, of course, I stayed in Shanghai and traveled back with <laughs> 300 million people. Um, but uh, now we're back in the office and so we're starting to put together the roadmap for what we're going to be doing with Akinero going forward. A lot of this is in response to our recent successful Kickstarter campaign and of course for the other projects that we're running live uh, like Big Head Bash and Crazy Fairies there's also a lot going on to uh, to kind of come back to the office and get them fixed up after the holiday. Excellent. So what is that like seeing all the people moving around? Is everyone that's not uh, matriculating back to their house kind of stay because of all the traveling uh, populace running around there? Or what is that like in a city with everyone moving so much? It's really crazy. So Shanghai is a pretty crazy city to begin with. There's 25 million people living here. So it's one of the most crowded and busiest cities on the planet. Um, and then you get Chinese New Year that comes along and suddenly something like 5 million or 6 million people leave. Plus, everybody's spending time with their families, so it goes from being this really incredibly busy place to overnight becoming like Zombieville, where there's no one on the streets, it's extremely quiet, um, so it's a really nice time, actually. I actually kind of like to stay in the city during the holiday, because it's one of the few times that you can walk outside on the street and not get run over by a car, um, or you know, pushed around on the sidewalk. Um, so yeah, it's, it's actually pretty, it's a pretty interesting thing to witness, but if you were trying to travel... Um, it's a terrible thing. You, you hear stories of people having to like wear diapers while standing in line for the trains and the buses because the lines will go on for days as wow. they're trying to get to their hometown, which may be thousands of miles away from a big city like Shanghai. Okay. So most people work in the city and then they leave to go to kind of outer towns? Yeah, it's uh, migrant workers, and, you know, I think even when you look around our studio, you'll find that, um, you know, China's a big place, so it's just like if you had a hub of culture and creativity in Los Angeles, but in fact, most people who live in LA are not from Los Angeles, they're from all over the United States. Um, the, Shanghai is very much the same way. Um, the difference is that, you know, sort of where uh, in LA, everybody goes back home for Christmas and Thanksgiving, here it's Chinese New Year, and suddenly you've got 200 or 300 million people uh, trying to travel all at the same time. Wow, okay, interesting. Um, let's start with some of the gaming questions I have for you in your childhood. Uh, were you a gaming child, and what were your favorite games when you were young? Well, when I was growing up, the kind of gaming machines we had access to were, were pretty primitive. There were things like the Odyssey system, um, which your, your users would have to be pretty old to know what that was. Um, but, I mean, we, we started off on Atari, and we started off on these things that were like calculators you plugged into your television, 
Um, but I, I grew up in a kind of resource limited uh, environment, meaning we didn't have a lot of money. So most toys that uh, that I had were ones that I built for myself. So my, my family thought that a good kind of Christmas or birthday present for me oftentimes would be like a coffee can uh, filled with string and batteries and motors and lights. And so their idea was that, um, you know, I would go and build my own toys. And so that, um, I think, is one of the reasons why, to this day, I really enjoy, uh, you know, kind of making games or any kind of tinkering or creative endeavors is because I grew up with that kind of play as opposed to being given finished toys um, that didn't require as much imagination. So what led you toward the more development side rather than engineering? I would think, you know, actual building well, with your hands. Yeah, I, I started off programming. And so when I got my first entry into the industry, which was at id Software, one of the things that I was doing in addition to level design was programming. Uh, so I, I've kind of run the gamut from sound and music to level design to programming to game design to production, you name it. Uh, but to this day, I still get very mechanically involved in my hobbies. So on the side, when I'm not making games, I like building electric scooters. Um, scooters are a very big way of, of getting around Shanghai. So there's like okay. 12 or 15 million uh, electric bicycles or scooters here. And so I, I like... Are like Razor scooters that we mean? Like it's a hand... No, no. It looks just like a normal kind of gas, you know, gasoline scooter, like a Vespa ah, or okay, okay. something like that. But it's driven by batteries and an electric motor. And so um, so my one of my hobbies on the side is to build those, but to build them very fast. Um, I mean that they go fast, not that I build them fast. <laughs> Interesting. So you have, like, racing scooters. I don't really race them, but, you know, <laughs> you race to work. drive them back and forth to work, <laughs> like a Mad Max race, yeah. Neat. So were your parents supportive of, you know, games in general? And they seem to be uh, supportive of you building things. When you started to play, did they uh, did they like that as well? Uh, I'd say that they were kind of hands-off in terms of parenting. Uh, again, I would describe my childhood as sort of resource-limited, and I think that also applied to uh, the time and attention that I was getting from the sort of parental figures uh, in my life. So I was left... Uh, to my own devices most of the time. Okay. Something I was wondering about, and I wanted to ask you too, I guess kind of the purpose for that question is, uh, a lot of people that I speak to kind of play games as a child, or they get into video games, you know, very young, and uh, it seems like in the news lately, the reputation of video games has been somewhat questionable with the all of them kind of being lumped together in the land of violent uh, video games. And I wonder, uh, for, you know, younger adults and children, if they're going to end up being discouraged from going into, you know, something like video games because of that, and, and if it's going to end up being like the rebellious teen's way to buck the system is to become a developer, I guess, what are, what are your thoughts well, on something like that? I, I think already that, well, since I started, which is 20 years of, of making games, I mean, when you talk to kids, as far as I understand, being a game developer is now up there with like race car driver or astronaut in terms of um, you know, top of the list of things they'd like to do when they when they grow up. Uh, I don't think that the conversations we have about violence in media or the impact that our media has on us psychologically is going to necessarily affect um, whether or not kids change their their aspirations, right? I mean, we know that, you know, rock stars have always come with a sort of warning label uh, in the music industry in general, but that doesn't seem to discourage kids. If anything, it seems to drive them towards 
um, the mystique and the allure of it. And so yeah, I don't I don't think that these conversations are going to discourage kids from wanting to uh, to get into the industry. That's good. So how do you go from your your um, more you know hands-on toy building kind of childhood to getting into school and deciding that you'd like to go and into the music production, sound effect development, let's see, programming, level design. You had a whole set of diverse skills that you picked up. How did you decide to go that direction? What got you interested in that? Well, again, this all kind of went back to my childhood. I mean, I was a tinkerer and a person who played with a lot of different, uh, you know, whether it was machines or software or whatever. Um, my schooling actually ended quite early. Uh, I came home one day to find that my house was empty. And so when I was still in high school, um, I was forced to drop out and go out on my own. And I spent some years working as a car mechanic before I found uh, my way into the games industry. So I don't think that in those days there wasn't a lot of a, like a sort of plan to go and become a game developer. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I was a kid, I was more interested in becoming a marine biologist or some type of uh, hands-on scientist in the world. I was a big fan of Carl Sagan and Jacques Cousteau. So gaming and computers never really entered into it from an entertainment perspective. I always looked at it um, more like a tools and hard science um, sort of perspective. And it wasn't until someone randomly opened the door and said, would you like to stop being a car mechanic and come and become a, you know, a game industry person that the idea kind of took form. And of course, I, I said yes and, and jumped on the opportunity. Mm, tell me more about that. That's like everyone's dream. Uh, it, how did you end up working for it? Yeah, that was um, just right place at the right time. I had moved uh, to a new apartment complex, and in that same complex, there was a guy who would come home driving a Ferrari, and I would come home covered in grease, driving the shop truck, you know, oftentimes with like a dead motor in the back of it. And um, we became friends and started playing Nintendo and, and games together. And after... I don't know if it was a year or so, he, he started to invite me to go to id to help them test on, on their games. And so that started off, I think they were still in the, coming out of the Wolfenstein era. And by the time they were working on Doom, uh, he had invited me to come and work in the studio full time. Excellent. Working on games like uh, Doom 2 and Quake and Quake 2, I mean, that's, that's huge in the industry for your first games to be working on. What did you end up doing for those? And what was it like kind of jumping into that? It was very much like uh, getting a free pass into Disneyland, you know, having someone open the gates and say, hey, you're welcome to come in here and play. Uh, When the customers aren't around, you get to be behind the scenes and help us build the puppets. And so I I really felt like a kid um, set free inside of an amusement park. And the opportunity was tremendous in that there was a lot of freedom. There were only eight people at it, including the receptionist, um, when I was hired. I was the ninth employee and I was kind of told that, you know, you can do whatever you can prove that you're good at, um, which for me meant that I, I just didn't go home. I stayed and worked and learned and um, really pushed myself to be as useful in as many places as I could uh, make myself useful. And I learned a tremendous amount. It was like boot camp for games. And it was also a really interesting time for me in terms of personal development, just growing up and learning about working inside of a company with other, you know, kind of competitive, creative individuals, learning about office politics, um, learning very young about the, the dangers of making too much money too fast, 
Um, so there was a lot that, uh, that I learned and that I took away from the experience. Uh, and I would say that, um, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely fantastic. While you were there, did you have any idea of the magnitude of the games you were working on? Yeah, I think we all kind of figured that out very early on because we would get um, the connection that we had with the coast customers was really phenomenal. And it would be something like uh, a professor at one of the larger universities, say in Wisconsin or something, who would write and say, please don't release your game demos the week before finals because you're, you're screwing up the grade average. And so, uh, or we'd get an email from somebody at a data center somewhere who would say, please don't release your demos or your games, you know, during this time period because you're screwing up our bandwidth and our ability to serve our customers because we just, data centers can't, can't handle this. Um, so that there were all kinds of impacts in the real world that we were hearing about that, that really affected people's lives. And I think that that started happening very early on that we understood that these games would go out and change the world. And, you know, it's not like they were necessarily changing it for the better, but you could certainly see plenty of evidence of there being an impact. That would be interesting, I think, doing something that you knew was going to have such an impact. Not that you wouldn't be concentrating and paying a lot of attention and putting your all into it, but I think that would definitely be inspiration. Yeah. Well, I think everything that we do, I mean, people, we, this is the problem that we have in this day and age is that we ignore the externalities. We don't think about how every single thing that we purchase, that we put our hands on, every action that we make, whether it's making a game or it's purchasing an iPhone, or it has a ripple effect throughout the world around us. And that is now being compounded by the number of people that are on the planet and how connected we are. And this goes back to your question about, you know, the impact of violence or media in general on people's brains. We're forcing evolution on ourselves and on our psychology and on our physiology these days at a rate that's unprecedented in the history of man. And I think it's still going to be another 50 years before it really starts to catch up with us and we understand just what we've done to ourselves over the last 50 years. I agree. <laughs> Isaac Asimov, interesting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so after this, I believe you became the creative director for EA. Uh, can you describe what that is? What what does that job entail? Well, I wasn't like the creative director with a capital like T. Yeah. Okay. They, they have many uh, creative directors, but my initial post there was actually at Maxis. So I was working in the same space as Will Wright, and that was when they were creating The Sims. Um, I had the honor of getting to sit in on some of the design meetings and making um, some bizarre suggestions like that the Sims should pee on themselves if they were left uh, without... <laughs> you, you created the torture for the Sims. Yeah. So Will would walk by my office and I would be laughing maniacally and he'd be, what are you, what are you doing? And I'd say, well, I've you know locked them into this room and they're, I want to see them <laughs> suffer. And, and so after a while, I got um, uninvited to these design sessions uh, because I think a lot of the ideas I, w I w was kind of throwing at them uh, went beyond their family-friendly grief for what they were trying to do. Um, so then I, I moved and uh, was working out of the headquarters in Redwood Shores, and that found me traveling the world, meeting with other developers, helping them to guide their products towards completion, or in some cases also having the responsibility of helping them to decide to quit their project or, or to shut down their studio. So that, that was a really challenging, really tough 
um, time, but it ended up with EA offering me my ch a chance to make my own product, um, which was the Alice game. That was the idea I took to them in the big Greenland. Yes. Is that, how, how would you consider your creative control over that? Is that the first game that you feel like was kind of yours exclusively? What decisions were you able to make on that game? Well, I think it's tough. Um, it, it would not be honest of me to say that that's my game because ultimately there's so many people that become involved with game development and I'm not the type of creative director or, or project director who tries to go in and have my hand on absolutely every facet and every decision that's made. Um, I feel like games should be an organic process that is made up of all the people who are involved with them, even for, for better or worse. Um, I think games are not just a reflection of society, but they're a reflection of the teams that create them, as most things that are made by teams are. And so I think that that has to, should be embraced. And um, so what usually happens is I'll come up with an initial concept and then I'll work with the team to kind of guide it um, gently, loosely. But um, a lot of times it's, you know, the art department kind of it takes on a life of its own and they go in their own direction. Um, for the Alice games, what's interesting to me is that the concept, the core concept is so strong that you get, it kind of takes on a life of its own. And what I always like to see is that the team starts to kind of hear Alice as a character, as a person, and understanding that it's her that should be guiding the product because it's her mind, it's her imagination that we're running around inside of. So in a sense, the constraints all come from the definition of who she is as a character. Mm -hmm. And I always feel like my, my only real difficult job is to just make sure that the team stays true to that definition. Uh, and that's it. I don't know that I've ever come across a game that has uh, a name on it, though, like the Alice series, like American McGee's Alice. You know, it, that seems very unusual. How did that come about? Well, it used to be normal. Uh, it used to be quite common that when you went to purchase a game, uh, you understood who made it, where it came from, what that team was about. There was a very personal, very direct connection between developers and their audience. And then sometime around, you know, 15, uh, maybe 18 years ago, publishers started to come in and the, these, these uh, proprietary platforms came in and they started to focus more on the branding of companies like Microsoft and Sony and EA than they did on the branding or the value of the individuals who are making the games. Um, so in this case, it's funny because the decision to put my name on a box came out of a corporate meeting room where they were simply trying to protect their IP. It wasn't about, let's make this American guy a named figure. It was, how do we take a public domain property the Alice story, and attach a name to it that cannot be imposed upon, cannot be easily tread upon. So they were throwing around things like Alice in Nightmareland. Well, the problem is it's already been done. Um, they were throwing around a lot of different, you know, variations on Alice in Wonderland. But if you go out there and you look, you'll find that the majority of those have already been touched on or taken or someone could lay claim to them. So... Mm -hmm. American McGee's Alice was the most clearly defensible thing that they could come up with. And that's why I ended up getting my name on the box. Hmm. 
You were just speaking about this, and I had questions later, but I think now is a good time to ask them. Uh, something I'd like to understand more, and I think that you're kind of the expert to enlighten me on this, is the relationship between the studio and the developer, like EA. Um, often, you know, people are said to work... I'm going to use this in, as an example because I just had someone on from EA recently, so for me, it's just an easier example. Um, People are said to work for them, even though they create games technically through a different studio. Like last uh, month I had uh, Daniel Ignacio on from Visceral Games. Visceral Games is, I assume, creating the game, and then EA is distributing it. Why is it that you often really don't ever hear about the studio itself? Like, I had never heard of Visceral Games. Of course, I know EA. Um, when EA doesn't technically create the product, how, how does that work? What, what sort of control does the distributor have you know, versus the studio? Well, I mean, they want to increase the share price of their stock, which is, you know, EA stock. They don't care about building the value of brands that they don't control or own. So they cannot control or own individuals. I work there. I don't work there anymore. Uh, that means that any value that they put into me and my name, they lost when I left, at least to the degree that I'm not willing to continue working with them as an outside contractor. Uh, so they're going to be very careful about where they put their marketing dollars because that's essentially pouring value and money into something either that they own or they don't. And they're always going to choose to pour it into things that they do own. Do they have actual developers? Do distributors have developers that they keep like in-house or do they always go through outside contractors? It's a mix of both. So with, with EA, they have, um, you know, at their, their headquarters in Redwood Shores, they have a stable of development teams that are sometimes marked out by the name of the project they're working on or sometimes by the floor that they're sitting on or sometimes... So something like Visceral actually began as a group of people working at Redwood Shores who branded themselves as Visceral and ran an internal campaign to build a brand around the idea of EA Redwood Shores is a game developer, and we want it to become something that game developers recognize as a brand name associated with a particular type of content. Therefore, here's Visceral, and we'll get ourselves away from the EA branding. But ultimately, it's still just another part of EA. So you could look at this the same way as like Sony, as a large record producer, might have multiple labels underneath their larger Sony Global brand. But each one of those labels is targeting a different type of consumer. One may be for urban, or one may be for country and western, one may be for metal, but ultimately it's all Sony corporate, but no one's going to kind of associate with or feel emotions for Sony corporate, so that's why they'll create these other brands that you can latch onto as a consumer. Does the distributor actually purchase the game from the studio? Do they own it in any way, or is it just their job to basically um, you know, market it and make sure that people get it? Well, the distributor, you you know, I mean, EA is the marketer. They are the distributor. They are everything except for the retailer. So it, it in an instance like that, I mean, they own the entire pipeline all the way to up until the retail shelf space, at which point someone like GameStop owns the retail shelf space. And so, you know, then a, a relationship develops between the large publishers and the retail guys that helps to define actually the genres that we get in terms of content and it defines and limits the amount of creativity that goes into the marketplace because there's only so much room on the shelves for a certain number of titles and i think actually this is one of the biggest travesties of the last 20 years of game of the games industry in the u.s and the west in general 
is that this relationship between proprietary hardware manufacturers like Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo, the retail establishments where the content is sold, this entire idea of games on discs and publishers that fund their production, it all equals a monopoly. It all creates a situation in which independent development of original game titles gets pushed aside in favor of a very few and distinct number of genres built by a very small number of companies that can afford to play the game. And I think that does a disservice to us as developers, to the players, and to innovation and creativity in the industry in general. So do they have a say in exactly how your game is made and what's in it? Or is it like you form it fully and then you bring it to them and then they say... You can form any idea you want to and then try to take it to them. But unless it fits into their predefined categories for the types of content that they're used to selling and what the shelf space is prepared to accept, there's a very small chance you're going to get it picked up. So when I was at at Maxis, um, The Sims was what was being developed. And I saw that project almost killed like six or seven times. Now, it went on to become one of the best-selling, if not the best-selling PC game of all history. But prior to the launch, the EA executives would get together around this big board table in a board reading room, and they would argue over whether or not this product should live or die. And it was not that they thought it was a bad game. It was that they didn't know how to sell it. They didn't know where it would go on the retail shelf space, how to convince the retailers to put it on the store shelves, or how to convince the marketers how to sell it to the audience. And so this is, again, a, a sort of function of that self-limitation that the uh, industry imposes upon itself. I've noticed that there is a trend, uh, basically the one I've noticed more is Kickstarter, where uh, you know studios will go directly to Kickstarter and try to, I assume, kind of skip the middleman. Uh, how effective do you think this is to getting games made? And, and it seems like there's almost a general feeling from the gamer themselves that if a company is large enough that they, they kind of don't need the money and they aren't supported as much. It, I guess that's two questions. Yeah, I mean, this is great. This is, um, this is the propaganda of the large publishers, the guys who control the distribution mechanism working against the players and against the interests of the players. So they've created this sense of, you know, developers um, not being in line with or friendly to gamers. And they've also created this idea that publishers are your best friend and that Microsoft and Sony are your best friends. Um, and so when you see the reaction of games going online or always online or Kickstarter campaigns or any kind of alternate distribution or financing mechanisms and players fighting against that stuff, railing against it, they're actually railing against things that would be beneficial to the e ecosystem in general. It would make for better and more creative games and more types of games. Uh, so I think there's, there's some learning that has to be done on, on both sides, that developers have to get back to an understanding of their business, not just as creators of games, but as servicing customers. So that's something the publishers have mastered. They're really good at creating perception and servicing so that they've removed the concept of developers from the picture almost entirely. Um, so developers these days need to kind of fight to get back to the relationship, a positive and, and strong relationship with the consumers, I think, in order to overcome this. But yeah, some portion of that is also trying to educate consumers on the fact that it costs money 
to make games. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And it doesn't just happen that games appear in boxes magically and then you go in and pay for them. The money has to be spent up front um, over very extended periods of time with very large and complicated teams before the thing ever sees its way to a type of, a type of product that a consumer would purchase and pay for. Do you think now with sort of games turning towards Steam where things are more downloadable, you don't, it's kind of the death of packaging and the actual, you know, hard disk. Do you think now that these methods are more available, you'll see people get more excited about Kickstarters and, and things where they don't actually, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think it's a factor that people don't have a game to hold in their hand necessarily, um, that people don't support Kickstarters sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. And, but, you know, you got to keep in mind that the majority of the world isn't like that. The majority of the world has now gone past the Western box model so that they're consuming the, almost all of their content either on mobile devices or on digital downloads to their PC. So the Western concept of a console market controlled by a very few number of manufacturers and fed by a limited retail distribution stream, uh, that's that's going away. And so I think it's just a matter of time before gamers in the West start to become comfortable with that. Everybody's always a little bit afraid of change. It doesn't matter where it happens or what it's about. So this is just another kind of version of change is happening. People feel a little bit uncomfortable about it. Um, but I think after, you know, another couple of years, we're going to see that it's normalized. And we're already starting to see games like Team Fortress 2 or Dota that are convincing people that free-to-play online, always connected games are not bad. They're not pure evil. And it's just going to take more quality games like that, I think, before developers and, and, and gamers come around to understanding each other and why this is good for both. Let's get back to Alice a little. I kind of jumped the train. <laughs> Okay. Uh, in the Through the Looking Glass book by Lewis Carroll, uh, I have to say, which always disturbed me and has given me kind of a fear of mirrors and certain poems, um, there's a much darker kind of look to the Alice game uh, than people think of when they think of like the Disney Alice character. Do you consider it a horror game? And what was the reception for that? I don't think that they're horror games. I, I think that she's been through some horrific events. And like I said before, the things that we're seeing and we're experiencing, they are always a function of Alice's psyche. We even had one rule during production that she could not see or experience something in Wonderland unless there was a valid, identifiable inspiration that she could have taken out of the environment in which she lived. So that means that um, if we were going to see a steam train, she would have had to have exposure to steam trains at some point in her life. If we were going to see a rocket ship, that wasn't going to work because she never would have. Uh, seen or Period. heard of. Exactly. I see. I see. Uh, so, so what we're looking at is, you know, the landscape of Alice's mind as has been defined by her experiences in her life up until the point where we're, we're joining her in this adventure. Uh, so, yeah, some really terrible things have happened to her, but the point of this is not horror. The point of this is not to frighten the, the player or to have that sort of visceral experience that's all about blood and guts. And this was one of the things that we, we did have um, some disagreement with EA over, that they wanted it to be categorized as a horror game. They wanted it to be in the same uh, genre type as Dead Space or Dante's Inferno because they know how to sell that. They know where that fits on the shelf space. And so 
that was something that uh, we had to wrestle over quite a bit um, because I, I've never seen the games as uh, as horror like that. I've heard uh, that the rights were sold as a possible movie. Do you think we'll ever see like Alice in a film? It, it's hard to say. The, the rights are still out there. There's a guy in Hollywood, uh, the producer, who uh, is still sitting on top of them and I think trying to get something done, but I don't really keep contact with him. Okay. Uh, I believe at this point you left to form the, the and I'm going to say it wrong, Mauritania Import-Export Company, uh, your own game studio. Why that name and what happened to that after Scrapeland and Bad Day LA? So T-M-I-E-C um, was the, the very unwieldy abbreviation for that company. Um, it took its name from a building that I was living in at the time uh, called the Mauritania Building, which was in Los Angeles. It was a historic uh, building that was, oddly enough, created by one of the stars from the original Wizard of Oz movie. And so I'd had this idea to do a Wizard of Oz game, but it just so happened that when I moved to Los Angeles, um, the second place that I ended up living in Los Angeles was this building that had been created by one of the Wizard of Oz stars. Um, so yeah, that, uh, that company existed for a number of years. Uh, it was meant to be an independent game production, uh, you know, kind of studio, not, not that we were developing titles, but that we were acting as producers and designers for them. And so we managed to get the Oz project started up, but that project was killed by Atari when they ran into financial trouble. Uh, we also managed to do things like Scrapland, which was my helping with an existing development team and their existing game to finalize it and then also to go out and market it and sell it. Uh, and then that also led to uh, my moving to Hong Kong to work on Bad Day LA, which I think, as everybody knows, was a pretty bad game. <laughs> <laughs> I have not played it, I can't say. <laughs> uh, I'm curious about the American McGee's Oz, which I, I believe never got produced, and I understand there were some sort of financial difficulties with Atari. Uh, do you feel like there's there's elements of that that are going to come out in something new? Kind of, kind of heard rumors that maybe this has there was some sort of collaboration or beginnings talks for the uh, Oz the is it Oz the Great movie that's come out. There's been rumor that maybe. There was, there was something that had to do with that movie that you may have written a script that I don't know if ended up being part of it or not. What, what's the truth about that? Yeah, so we did get a project going with Atari around the Wizard of Oz idea that I came up with. Um, that also led to, like, I think, a book deal uh, and a toy deal and then a film deal. And for the film deal, that was signed up with Bruckheimer who had been looking for an Oz project for some number of years and happened to like the pitch that we gave uh, for this idea. They hired writers, and then after some year or more, uh, they decided that those writers weren't really getting the job done. So they asked me to write. Uh, I spent a year working with them on a script, which I turned in, and then never heard from them again, which I'm pretty sure means they thought it was terrible. Um, I think that's the Hollywood way of like, <laughs> This was really bad. Don't call us. We'll call you. Uh, so that, uh, that all kind of took place after the game version had already been killed by Atari. And by that point, also, I had moved to Hong Kong. And so had kind of started to leave behind the U.S. and a lot of the what I felt like were old projects. So these days, the Oz, Oz project is really encumbered. I mean, the film rights still reside with Disney and Bruckheimer. 
the game rights are still tied up to some degree with Atari, and everything else that goes with it's sort of still tied up in the old company, the Mauritania company, um, which is now defunct, but there are still ex-partners out there who may want to lay claim to various pieces of IP. Um, all that basically says is it's not really worth my time to try to explore it. Um, if we did uh, go after Oz again, it would be a completely fresh uh, reimagining and wouldn't have anything to do with the old version. But I'm not in a big hurry to try to explore that right now. Uh, we, we have a lot of ideas floating around the studio for different types of games, and they're not all twisted fairy tales. And in fact, I want to give the people in our studio a chance to kind of spread their wings and express their ideas and to work on things that they're interested in that are not always uh, going to be in the dark you know, fairy tale genre. Mm -hmm. I've always wondered what happens when a studio closes, like 38 Studios closed this year. I knew they were working on Ascendant and God the Game. And I always wonder what happens to all that material and all those ideas, especially if you're you know, halfway through development and a studio closes. Someone ends up owning it. Nothing, nothing just opens up and, you know, becomes publicly available. When there's an asset that's owned by a company and the company declares bankruptcy, like what happened recently with THQ, uh, they owe creditors money. And so then they have an auction and people go in and start bidding for various pieces of IP or maybe even down to something as mundane as a chair or a printer that was sitting in their building. But everything has a real world value and nothing can be disowned. Uh, when it comes to companies, everything eventually has to be assigned to a new owner, liquidated, you know, sold off, whatever. And so uh, that would be the same thing that happened, for instance, with the Mauritania company. You know, we went through the IP and picked out stuff that we, I was interested in, which I held on to, and then let other stuff go to various, you know, uh, other forms or states. Okay. Is there, is there any, like... Um rivalry between you and Atari because of that financial difficulties? Do you feel do you feel like satisfaction now that they've filed been, for Chapter 11? Uh, you know, that's been such a long time. They've gone through bankruptcy so many times over the last 15 years um, that it's not really possible to point a finger at any one person or group of people who defines what Atari is for more than a few years because mm -hmm. every couple of years that brand name gets bought, sold, bankrupted, bought, sold, and new teams of people form around it and the IP that it owns. So uh, I don't have any, any hard feelings about that at all. Take me to the founding of Spicy Horse. And I kind of, the assumption is that uh, from your previous company, which I'll have to look up the name again, uh, that most of that kind of just ended up becoming Spicy Horse. How did that, how did the founding of that, with the story of that? Well, I was living in Hong Kong. I left uh, U.S., and I think that was around 2005, and was working on Bad Day LA, which was for a developer-publisher based in Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong called Inlight. And so they had given us a very small development budget and asked us to build what was very much an overly ambitious uh, project with that and a pretty small team. And then after that was finished up, I was offered a development contract from GameTap in the U.S. who were um, owned by Time Warner. And so they came in and said, look, we'd like you to make another Twisted Fairy Tale game with your branding on it. Uh, and I told them that I didn't have a studio or capability to respond to this. And they said, not a problem. Go build a studio wherever you'd like. 
Um, and at that point, I had been traveling to Shanghai to help a friend of mine open an outsourced studio to do 3D art assets. And so I had experience and exposure to Shanghai, and I'd already had the idea that the landscape here was such that there were really only two places that you could work if you were a game developer. There were the large Chinese operators, which are the biggest game companies in the world, um, which, which of course most Western gamers have never heard of, companies like Tencent, Shonda, The Nine, NetEase. Um, or you could go work for an outsourcer producing 3D art content, which ironically goes back to the U.S. and is played by U.S. gamers, and they don't realize that. So when you're playing Call of Duty or Medal of Honor or any game practically on console these days, um, the art assets are being made in China and then put together by teams in the U.S. or in the U.K. or whatever. And so my thought was, wow, this is not a great place if you want to make independent games. Uh, that you want to do independent games for the Western market. So the thought was, why not open a studio in Shanghai, work on original ideas, and give developers in China an opportunity to work somewhere that's not either directed at the local market or outsourcing for the Western market. Hmm. What, where did the name come from? It sounds like Forbiddenly Delicious. So in uh, this is a bit egotistical, but um, the name spicy horse in chinese my name is lucky horse uh if you take my last name mcgee then you turn that into chinese it's ma ji and uh i'm a big fan of spicy food so mala is how you would say uh the kind of very specific spicy numb flavor that a lot of chinese food has is called mala so in chinese the, the company is called mala ma the spicy horse um to chinese ear it sounds quite nice it's really kind of rhythmic uh, and also things like the domain name uh, was available. We could make a cool logo out of it. So there were a lot of things that drove us towards uh, the decision. And, um, yeah, I think it, it ended up being pretty unique, and it works pretty well here in China as well. What's the atmosphere there? Is it a large studio? Uh, we have 50 people working here now. So that's um, two buildings. One I sit in is almost entirely our art department, so animators, 2D artists, 3D artists. And then we have a second building that is our tech, producers, level designers, game designers. Um, the buildings we are in are 100 plus years old, so they've been here uh, on Suzhou Creek, which runs through the middle of Shanghai, uh, for a long time, and they've been everything from originally a flour mill to warehouses to apparently smugglers and um, thieves once used the buildings as well. So there's a lot of history uh, inside the buildings. Hmm. Possibilities of secret places. <laughs> Not so much because they're, they're kind of like warehouses. I mean, they're very cool, um, but they're very big uh, open spaces. So there's not a lot of uh, hidey holes or secret, secret places. I have to ask, do you get any flack for being named America in China? Uh, no, not so much. So the Chinese... Uh, kind of normal thing that you would do at some point in high school or maybe maybe younger is to choose an English name and so the, the names that get picked are sometimes really funny uh, they don't have the same kind of prohibition or ideas about names that we do of what's normal or what's appropriate or not so I've had the honor um, here in China of working with Led Zeppelin another guy named himself Catastrophe uh, there was one guy whose nickname was Speed Shit uh, we had a girl whose name was Bosom. 
we had a guy whose name was Danielle. Um, there, there have been so many uh, unusual names. So when I introduce myself and I say my name is American, they're like, whatever. <laughs> you know, you're not anywhere near as weird as like the guy who named himself uh, Alien, uh, as an example. So it's, uh, no, it's actually a country that's great for having an unusual name. <laughs> so the fascination with fairy tales, and you've called them twisted fairy tales before, the Brothers Grimm, Wizard of Oz, uh, Alice, all of that. What, what is the... Uh, the draw for that, and did you used to read these books as a child? Uh, I did read the books as a child, and I think that the the draw then, um, much as it is today, I'm always very interested in the psychology that goes into the formation of the tales and the fact that they go back so far into what makes us human. They go back, like a Red Riding Hood, for instance, there's no written record of the origin of that story. It's such a basic tale of being cautious while traveling alone um, that you would not be able to find any culture which doesn't have it. So in China, in Europe, and everywhere in the world, when you find an ancient culture, you're going to find an ancient version of Red Riding Hood. Um, that means that it goes back 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 years prior to men traveling out into the world and forming the various tribes that now define the nations that we see in our in our modern world. Um, and that, to me, is very interesting because that means that there's something contained within the stories that transcends culture, transcends, uh, you know, territories and boundaries, and it makes these, these tales very human. And that's the thing that I really enjoy about them. Hmm. I can see that. They're very iconic. They sort of have those, like, archetypal people that you're talking about. Um, hmm. Alice Madness Returns, you spoke a little bit about being kind of recruited to do another one of the Twisted Fairy Tales. Um, the sequel, the idea for the sequel, um, was there a reason to, to go that direction? What was the inspiration for that? So the Alice stories are following a pretty classic um, hero's journey, which if you look for a modern example, you might see something like The Matrix, mm. where the three films are broken into the hero... Uh, overcoming three distinct sections of resistance within themselves. So in the first Alice game and in the first Matrix film, um, there is an awakening of and a power derived from overcoming the psychological, the internal, um, the mental space. And so you see that at the end of both stories, there's a sort of blossoming and awareness of power within the mind. And that would be, in the Matrix films, it would be within the Matrix, suddenly Neo has the power to take off and fly. Um, and for Alice, it's with, you know, the, the resolution of her conflict at the end of the, the first game. It's the ability to reshape Wonderland back to the way that it was before this, this conflict began. Um, with the second Alice game, it was the external, it was the physical. And so it was her being able to use this newfound mental psychological power to impact the real world outside. And that was the same thing you saw in like a Matrix film. Um, and then the third is one where the hero combines the two pieces together. So that's where if we ever made a third Alice film, the idea that she could take her psychological power and then use that in the real world and to travel into other people's wonderlands, into their minds, and to have impact upon their lives, that would be the next chapter, and it would head towards a kind of resolution and uh, fulfillment of her hero's journey. Do you think we'll see that? 
that's up to EA. They own the IP and control it 100%. Um, if I could convince them to make it tomorrow, I would. Uh, but they are EA, and they, they kind of make their decisions at their own pace. Okay. Well, let's hope. <laughs> yeah, sure. I like the Vorpal Blade in the, in the second one, and the combat is very unexpected, I felt, because, you know, you, you have this sort of, uh, almost like in The Wizard of Oz, kind of dark, you know, almost like, you know, sepia-toned beginning, and then you go into the Wonderland area, and everything's suddenly bright and, and colorful, almost as shocking as when you're in, you know, Wizard of Oz, and you suddenly see Technicolor. And and then this little, like, she's kind of small, and you know, somewhat cute, although angsty. You know, suddenly she has this sword in her hand. It's like attacking things. I really like the idea of the Vorpal Blade. I understand this kind of came from um, one of the, the Jabberwocky poems or something in the book. How many things in the game are, are directly tied to the Lewis Carroll book, and how many are things that you guys just kind of felt were Alice speaking to you? Well, this is, again, going back to the rules that we had about the origin of and the presentation of ideas inside of Wonderland, because, again, the mental landscape has to be defined by her life up to the point where we're joining her in the journey. And so when I look at the books and the character that we know in the books, I've always considered her to be the Alice that we are engaged with, but that at some point, um, and basically when I burned down her family's home, right? I mean, when we, when we made the creative decision to burn down her house and to kill her family, we broke the timeline so that we now have the Alice that we know in the game, and we have the Alice that continues off in the real world. Um, so those are two different universes. And obviously the games are taking place in the burnt down house, dead family universe, but the past remains the same. The connection to the books is still there. And so in order for everything to hold together and to make sense, we do have to honor who she was prior to the fire. And that means that we do have to go into the books and try to be as true as we can to who those characters were, who they could become, what they represent, the types of things that Alice would or would not experience or see in Wonderland, and so forth and so on. Okay. It seems as though there are a lot of things, and I know you've spoken about you know this being like a... a kind of running theme throughout history, but there seems like there have been a lot of things inspired by this game, or maybe inspired, that have inspired the game. Uh, I would say Sucker Punch reminds me an awful lot of this game, like the movie, <laughs> and just the tone and the kind of feel of it. Um, and I understand that Return to Wonderland by Xenoscope, which is a comic, uh, maybe happened before the game, but there's some similarities there too, in the sense that um, Alice has a certain like darkness to her, a certain look. Um, why do you think, I guess, people are interested in, in seeing more of the mental sort of dark side of Alice, you know, rather than looking at it as more of a, you know, a, a child's kind of tale? What is the appeal of the dark side? Well, this is what I was saying before about one of the things that's been really nice in working with this core concept is that there's something that's so clearly very natural about it. In that sense, it's not like it's my idea that we make a darker, twisted version. If it were my idea alone, and it were that unusual, I think it would be difficult to get people to come together around it and to make a cohesive product about it. And I've seen that. I've seen that problem with other game ideas um, in our own studio or inside of other game studios where the initial idea doesn't resonate naturally with enough people for them to come together 
and work as a team to produce something that the audience then looks at and says, I get this, this totally makes sense, right? Uh, so the why, I, I'm not sure, uh, you know, why in general we are attracted to things like violence um, or the darker side of things other than our minds tend to find violent subject matter more sticky. Um, the same way that we find sexual subject matter more sticky. I mean, there are just some some things about the way our brains evolve that will naturally pull us towards darker presentation and more violent or visceral presentation or more sexual presentation. So, uh, in a way, I think what we're looking at here is that these things all tap into the same uh, systems within our brains. It's the same reason for why these fairy tales have lasted as long as they have and why they all have a dark edge. Because when you tell a story... With the dark edge, it tends to be, you know, more memorable. It tends to push more of our buttons um, than, say, the same tale told without the darker elements. People like twisty problems, I guess. And if it's if it's worse, the worse it is, the more we like it. <laughs> but even like you look at a Pixar film, right? Which I think, you know, on the surface, in their advertising for Finding Nemo for a Toy Story or something like that. Uh, you know, you're, you're thinking this is a pretty light and happy family tale, but the reality is in a Toy Story, there's some pretty dark stuff going on. You know, the kid who's abusing the toys, the, the yeah. neighborhood bully who's blowing up with fireworks. I mean, he's awful and he's demonic. And the same thing when you go and look at Finding Nemo. I mean, the beginning of the story and the loss of the family and the things that the characters have to go through are, they're horrible trials. I mean, if you were to take that and to put it into the real world, right? You couldn't stand to watch it. If you found that that little boy was killing other children the way he was killing toys, the movie would never make it into the theater. So um, the beauty of, of, you know, something like a Pixar film is that they can take extremely dark and really scary concepts like that and present it in a way that we can swallow it and still make sense of it. Hmm. I never thought of it like that, but that's very true. If you saw it down in written word, you probably would have a much different reaction than seeing it with cute little characters. Pixar films are like Tarantino movies for kids, right? So, I mean, it's the same idea uh, when you're making, you know, a game that you can either go full bore, constant violence, constant blood and guts, or you can try to find a way to take really mature, really scary themes and wrap them in a narrative and wrap them in a story that makes sense, that has contrast, that has ups and downs. Because that's what makes it human. That's what makes it something that we can talk about and that resonates with us. Because our experience in normal life is one that's up and down. Some days are good, some days are bad. I, I think one of the bad things, the sad things about games that are like some of the bigger first-person shooters is there's very little contrast in the stories that are being told. It's just war and it's just violence and i think that when we do that it really limits the size of the audience that can find something interesting inside of that because it's, it's appealing to just kind of one note i agree let's move to akanero which i believe means matter red in japanese i don't know if that's the case uh, there's it's been said that this is inspired by a little red riding hood and i have to say i've played you know somewhat of the beta and for me, I don't know that I saw that other than the fact that there are like dead wolves in it and possibilities of wearing a cloak. Is this true? And what would be the intention of that inspiration? Well, it, it actually came um, first from a book called The Lost Wolves of Japan, 
which details the history of the genocide, of the decimation of wolves in Japan, especially in northern Japan, but throughout all of Japan. Um, so over 100 years ago, Western cattlemen went into Japan, which at that point was predominantly a Buddhist um, nation and that was vegetarian as well. Everybody in, in Japan, the island was vegetarian. And they introduced the concept of meat consumption. They fed meat to the emperor, who then gave them his blessing to go and to build cattle farms. And what they didn't think about were the external factors, the nature um, and things being in balance. So what ended up happening was the cattlemen had to run a propaganda campaign and then start a war against the indigenous life, the flora and fauna, like the wolves, and eventually wipe all of them out. And so it's this really awesome and horrible man versus nature story where as is usually the case nature loses um and you know to this day i mean you're still seeing the repercussions of that uh, but the most obvious one is that there are no more indigenous wolves in japan and so my thought was taking that more recent history and combining it with the concept of the wolf as a bad guy which we all know you know that all the way back to our childhood, you know, the most famous story of that is Red Riding Hood. Um, and using that as a platform to explore this tension between man and nature and the, the, the necessity for balance. So what we have in Akinero is really a kind of um, allegory for the necessity for balance. This is a world in which some really terrible things have happened and in, in effect it opened the hate, the, the gates to hell. Uh, these actions of wiping out the wolves have created such an imbalance in the real world that now you've had to call in these hunters who are going to try to put the demons back in the box after we've opened the box and, and you know threatened to destroy our entire planet. I haven't gotten quite that far, but I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. Well, you know, that's the subtext. Um, a lot of the story is not yet in there because it's a game that, you know, we release it online and we're going to continue to improve it and make additions to it. And stuff like the narrative is actually something that if you play the game today, you won't see a lot of this. Um, there are some brief comic book panels and some uh, dialogue that's, that's uh, displayed on screen inside the game. But the deeper aspects of the narrative like this, I think, are going to have to come in future updates. The idea of the story and the fact that the protagonist is a woman is pretty rare to see, you know, a strong female lead uh, in many of your your games. You know, Alice is an example, and and now this as well. Uh, why why is that 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 you've chosen to go that direction? It's very unusual and welcome, actually. <laughs> so I do feel like our industry, uh, you know, sort of rewards the repetition of certain things that, that work, um, those being, uh, you know, action games with big brawny muscular guys toting machine guns and rocket launchers and, and that not enough is done to explore outside the boundaries. And so one of the things is simply a desire to create content that pushes the boundaries, that helps to make sure that we still have other kind of ideas being expressed and that it doesn't all go towards, you know, muscly guys with machine guns. Um, I think some of that comes out of the fact that I did spend so many years at id Software and that that was a studio that was very much focused on first-person shooters and, you know, big, meaty uh, main main characters with, with rocket launchers, um, that I, I was burnt out on it. That was a very simple thing. But I think beyond that, the, the other part of it is that the idea of expressing emotion and exploring deeper narrative, I think you tend to get people... 
and a more receptive state of mind when it comes to things like that, when you shake up their expectations about where the game is set, who the main character is. Um, this is not to say that women necessarily are a better vehicle for telling an engaging story. It's just that if we replace the expected with the unexpected, then we're more likely to have people be receptive to some kind of new way of thinking about the presentation of story in a game. I really liked your link, I think, in Facebook the other day about the samurai woman. And I actually started researching that. I didn't realize that there was such a thing as a samurai woman, you know, back hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's an interesting concept to see, you know, that not even known, you know, that, that was interesting. Yeah, well, I think that this is, um, again, one of the travesties of the world that we live in is that the majority defines our perception of reality. And that leads to creativity that's limited by what's expected. And so I, I think that as a creator, one of the things that's a responsibility is to do things that are unexpected, sometimes just for the sake of shaking people up and making them realize that things don't always have to be homogenous. Some things that people are asking for uh, for Akinero, I understand it's going to be free to play. It is free to play, and it's out already. People can go to angry-red.com and play it in the web browser with a client download on Mac. And, is that what uh, I'm Windows. playing right now, or is that considered like just a partial beta? Well, I mean, it's the game. and But one thing people should keep in mind is that the game is going to evolve and improve. So we've got a roadmap of features... Um, that we're going to be releasing hopefully by the end of this week that includes things like co-op and crafting and, uh, you know, PvP arenas and bringing it to tablets and bringing it to Linux. And, I mean, there's just a huge, like, and also, like I said, like bringing more story elements. Um, so when people play the game today, I mean, they should realize that this is just sort of the tip of the iceberg, um, that there's a lot more content and features on the way. You have said that uh, you feel as though consoles are or shall I say that the mobile platform is kind of the new modern console. Um, and I know you have some games uh, coming out for that too, which we, we can talk about another time. But right now, uh, I'm assuming that that means Akinero will come out uh, exclusively for PC and probably not for console. Is that the case? Well, it's going to come out on, and already is out on Mac uh, and on Windows. And we're also having, uh, you know, we're going to release a Linux version. Um, plus onto tablets, so Android and Apple on iOS tablets. I don't know that um, there'll be a console version. There may be. Uh, but one of the things that's, that's nice about where and how we're distributing now is that when we release the game initially, it doesn't have to be the final version. We can constantly improve and add more content and new features. And so if you look at the other projects that we have out and have released so far, that's the case, that every week, every two weeks, we're putting new features, new maps, new characters, new weapons into them. And that's all driven by the relationship that we have with our customers and the feedback that they're giving us about what they want to see in those games. The thing that has kind of bored me with the console model, at least the retail model, is that you put all this data on a disk, and then the console itself makes it quite difficult to get new content there to update. And the whole pipeline that's in place, you know, from the, you know, Microsoft or Sony makes that a really difficult and costly thing for developers to do frequent um, updates to content and features. Okay, last question. Uh, do you have any personal influences that have gone into your games that we might not know about, things that, you know, little touches you decided to put in that, you know, maybe this 
character with someone you knew or something like that? Well, I think, I mean, this question comes up all the time. I don't have a really exciting answer for it other than um, my own personal narrative, you know, being something that I think was established um, by virtue of my childhood. And it was a very kind of unusual childhood um, in the sense that there, there was a very strong dichotomy between the households in which I grew up. On one side, it was um, fundamentalist religion. And on the other side, it was like super wild hippie um, and so I, I grew up in this sort of, you know, super hot on one side and super cold on the other side environment. Um, but in terms of day-to-day -day inspiration, it's just from everything and everywhere. And that's one of the reasons why I so enjoy living in China, because every single day is an opportunity to be exposed to something new, whether it's a new understanding of culture or language or, you know, exposure to new types of food or traveling and seeing different sites and locations. Um, and to me, that's, that's the most important thing is that every day, you know, you create an opportunity to read, hear, see, do something new. And that's where um, all of our inspiration for all of our creativity comes from. Awesome. A big thank you to American McGee. You can find him on Twitter at American McGee, M-C-G-E-E, -E, or you can download Akinero at angry-red.com and uh, play the game, which is really fun, and I recommend you do. Uh, a reminder that the Gray Area Podcast is entirely funded by listener support. So if you enjoyed this episode and some of the other interviews, I encourage you to go to genesee.com and look on the right-hand side where there are different buttons. You can choose an amount that you'd like to do or make up your own. As usual, I'm always very thankful for any of your contributions and any of your feedback on iTunes with giving stars or ratings. Uh, the, the contributions that you give go directly to the maintenance of the site and possibly sending me to PAX. So thank you for that. I'd also like to bring your attention to Hold the Line. Uh, where there is an initiative going on right now called We Are Gamers. You can make a video and put it on YouTube with hashtags HGL and We Are Gamers, and it will be seen as part of the drive. The purpose is to let people know that uh, people who play video games fall into all sorts of categories and look and act all, all sorts of different ways. Uh, there's definitely a stereotype for what the typical gamer looks like, and you can help to break that and to put a face to video gamers by going and making this video. So a thanks to Hold the Line who has been uh, showing the the interviews and making sure that the word gets out there. And if you'd like to leave some feedback or keep up with the news, you can find me on Twitter at Gray Area Podcast, at Facebook slash Gray Area Podcast, or on iTunes. If you have any gray areas in your relationships or just need a new perspective, email your questions, advice, or suggestions to genesegray at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week with a new episode. This podcast is a part of the Signals Media All-Star Network. For more information on this and other fine shows, go to signalsmedia.com. It's okay to stick our stuff in your ears. Really?